Hi, this is Steve Thomas, pastor of the First Baptist Church at Delray Beach. Welcome to our podcast. We study God's Word to apply it to our lives in order to make a difference in this life and in eternity. We hope you enjoy this message. We cry out, we cry out. My sermon is called Encountering Christ in the Midst of Suffering. Suffering is a difficult topic, and the Bible provides for us a way to process suffering. And so let me pray to God to ask for his help before we get into it. Father in heaven, we thank you for being a God who loves us, who made us to worship you. Thank you for giving us the lungs and and the mouth and the tongue to sing your praises. Thank you for your word. It is true, it never fails. Holy Spirit, move on our hearts here in this room, those who are online watching, those will watch later this week, to have an encounter with the Son of God. It's in his name I pray, amen. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? While the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. These words taken from the book of Job are the opening to a movie called The Tree of Life. The film shows a mother portrayed by Jessica Chastain. She's playing with her three sons in 1950s Texas. The mother in this scene is praying to God and she says, that she will always be true to him, no matter what comes. The very next scene, she receives a letter that her 19-year-old son has died. And she breaks into deep wailing and grief. The movie then follows her and her husband, who's played by Brad Pitt, as they grieve. And she prays to God and asks, What did you gain? Her friend tries to comfort her and says, You still have the other two, meaning your other two sons. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. That's the way he is. She talks to her pastor and he says, and she says, I just want to die to be with him. The pastor says, He's in God's hands now. And she says to him, He was in God's hands the whole time, wasn't he? He was in God's hands the whole time, wasn't he? A genuine, honest question that this movie explores on why does God allow suffering? The question that the film deals with is a question that believers, the people of God, have been wrestling with for thousands and thousands of years. Why does God allow his children to suffer? Is that not the most difficult question someone could ask you? God is all-powerful, isn't he? He loves me, right? Then why does he allow these things to happen to me when I have done nothing wrong? 
This is a different question than just why do people suffer in general. I mean, that's hard enough. That's a hard enough question. But the one I'm asking is more difficult than that. It's why does God allow his sons and daughters, those whom he bought with the very blood of his son, why does he allow them to suffer when they are innocent? There are people in our church who've gone through much suffering recently. Some have suffered miscarriages. Some have had family members die, a spouse, an adult son. Some have been betrayed by their spouses. Some have lost their marriages completely. Some have been falsely accused and had their child taken away. Some have had their adult children walk away from Jesus. What do you say to those people when they come up to you and they say, they were in God's hands the whole time, weren't they? Understanding suffering isn't simple. It's not as simple as saying, hey, you just need to trust God. There's your answer. Like the pastor and the, and, and the friend in the movie tried to do. It can't be dealt with in one sermon, so if that was your hope here, I'm sorry. It can't be dealt in one meeting or one conversation or one prayer. It's just not that simple. An important way that humans have dealt with suffering over time is through the power of art. Music. Books. Me and my wife are reading a book by Tolstoy, my very first Tolstoy novel. It's about this thick. And uh, it's awesome, it's amazing, you should read it. It's called Anna Karenina. We deal with uh, our, our, our emotions through, through art, so music, books, movies, poetry. It takes, to a, takes you to a place of meditation. I mean, if you were in high school and you had your heart broken, there's nothing better than driving alone for an hour, listening to sad country music. Like, turn on, you know, George Strait, Hank Williams, there you go. And it, it's cathartic, it, it cleanses your emotions. It's, it's just fascinating how that happens to us. This emotional cleansing that happens to us when we listen to a sad song, when we watch a war movie, when we read Shakespeare, or when we just break out the old family photos, we go through the memories. That's doing something to our hearts. God doesn't give us just a one-sentence answer to, to suffering. He doesn't say, you are suffering because this world is evil, but I love you and promise to take you to heaven when you die. If that's all it took, then our Bible's way too thick. No, God gave us a whole book, a story, a big story with many stories in it, and it's true, it's inerrant, it's infallible, and when we situate ourselves in that story and in relation to God, that's how we are able to deal with suffering. This is because we're, just, we're more than just brains on the stick, right? We have a heart and soul, of a mind. <clears throat> God has made us to be creatures of stories who fit in his big story of redemption through Jesus Christ. So there are, there are a set of books in the Bible. We call them the wisdom literature. You know them as Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. Or as John Priya calls them, the Jobster. And these books are are written to train us how to live in this world. 
And all three of them do a little bit of different stuff. So, so Job is the book I'm going to look at today. It's a poem, very long poem, so read it as poetry. It's 42 chapters long. And that's the question it's dealing with. Why does the innocent people of God suffer? So I'm going to tell you a story of Job. We're going to start in chapter 1. We're going to look at some um, verses, but we're not going to be really looking at a whole lot in one chunk, but we're going to go through the overview of the whole book. So let's just start with the book of Job, chapter 1. Who was Job? Well, the Bible describes him as a man of complete integrity. He feared God. He turned from sin. This is in verse 3 of chapter 1. The Bible says he was the greatest man among his people. God himself called him his servant. What a title. For the God of the universe himself to call you his servant. God declared that Job is above everyone else in the entire world. He was righteous. He was the kind of man that took God seriously in everything he did. His faith controlled everything he said and everything he did. God blessed him greatly with family, with wealth. He had vast land, he had cattle, he had servants, he a huge family. And he served as a sort of a priest for his family. So the story of Job takes place probably during the time of Abraham in that era. So this is before Israel was a nation, this is before they had a temple. So the way worship happened back then is the father was the priest of his household. What that meant was his duty was to connect his family to God. He was a mediator. So he would sacrifice on their behalf. So one thing that Job would do, and he would care for the spiritual state of his children, they would have parties, uh, you know, his adult children, and parties were pretty, probably pretty normal, not what we would consider a party today. But just in case they sinned at all, the next morning, Joe would be up sacrificing on the behalf, just in case they made a mistake. Job was vigilant in caring for his family's relationship with God. You know, there's nothing more impactful to a community than a man who takes God seriously. A man who takes the Almighty seriously is a man who has courage, a man with gravitas, that's a good word, moral weight, moral influence. When he walks into a room, people respect him, what he has to say. People go to that man when times are tough. And that was Job. Job was that man, and God adored Job. So in chapter one, we get a, a, a little inside scoop on what they call the divine counsel how God makes decisions and rules. You're probably familiar with this. So in chapter one, God is calling what they call the sons of God, which is another term for angels, to give an account to him for all that they've been doing. Among them is Satan. This is interesting. Satan is there to give an account to God for all he's been doing. That is a good insight for us on how evil works. Yes, Satan is evil. Yes, Satan does 
horrible things. We're going to see that in the life of Job. But Satan's on God's leash. Satan can only act if God permits. No one compares to God's power. So during this accounting, God brings Job to the attention of, of, of Satan. And look, at me, look with me at verse 8. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity, who fears God and turns away from evil. Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you placed a hedge around him, his household, and everything he owns? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he owns, and he will surely curse you to your face. Satan's saying, yeah, God, Job, he's only faithful to you because you've done only good things for him. He's got everything anybody ever wants. Of course he loves you. But if you allow something bad to happen to him, that'll show his true loyalty. That'll show the true state of his heart. So what does God do? God permits Satan to cause suffering to fall on Job. And the suffering is, is so unimaginable. His servants are slaughtered by bandits and raiders. His livestock are, are stolen or destroyed. His own sons and daughters die in a tragic accident. It's unimaginable. But the response is, is, is unimaginable as well. When he receives the news of this tragedy, this is what he says in verses 20 and 21. Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job has no idea about the testing that has happened between God and Satan, that conversation. He doesn't know about that. He doesn't have that inside scoop like we do. But his faith is strong. And he says, God, you're the giver of everything. Everything I have is from you. So you can take it away. Because you own it all. It's incredible faith. Satan doesn't like that. He doesn't like that response. So Satan's going to hit him with another one. He says, all right, let's give him boils from the top of his head all the way down to the bottom of his feet. That saying just covers his entire body. And these boils were awful. Job would use broken pottery just to scratch his own body just to find some relief. I mean, that's serious physical pain. And his own wife sees Job suffering and she goes up to him. She's like, Job, what are you doing? Look at you, Job. Curse God and die. Job doesn't do it. This is Job's response in chapter 2, verse 10. He says, Shall we accept only good from God and not disaster? And then that verse ends saying, Throughout all this, Job did not sin in what he did. He didn't sin. He is right. Job's friends show up. 
And they're pretty good friends. I mean, seven days they're with Job, no one's talking. It's that hard. They're just there, sitting next to him, crying with him. Finally, Job breaks the silence in chapter three, has this gut-wrenching lament. He says this, may the day I was born perish and the night that said a boy is conceived. What's he doing there? It's poetic. He's saying, I wish I never was born. I wish I never existed. It would have been better for me to have never come into this world. He's in a dark place. People feel this way when they suffer. Christians can feel this way and, and wish that they would never have existed. You can feel that way and have the Holy Spirit. Job's friends are listening to Job and, and his friends have all the wisdom of the period. Okay, They're the best theologians, the best philosophers, the best poets. They know exactly uh, what to say about every scenario. This is how they, they talk to Job. They say, Job, God has made the world to work in a certain way. You sin, you suffer. That's how it works, Job. You're suffering because you've done something wrong and the way to fix it is to repent, turn to God, and it'll go away. And there's a place for that to be kind of true. I mean, the book of Proverbs really does that well. You run in a gang, if you break the law, if you commit adultery, if, you, if you're drunk, if you do these things, if you're lazy, if you don't go to work, you're not gonna have the best life, probably. So yeah, that makes sense. But here's where they go wrong. They don't have a category for someone suffering even when they've done nothing wrong. They just, they, just, they just can't get into the logic of their worldview. And so no matter what Job says to them, they don't believe him. Job is saying, I'm innocent, and God is treating me like an enemy. That's, he says that. And he's like, I just want to talk to God. If I can just be in the court setting, it's kind of the imagery there, with God so I can plead my case and he would understand. I just want my day in court with God because I don't understand what's going on. Job continues to cry out in pain and his friends continue to say this to him. And so after all this, okay, after all the terrible things that happened to him, his, his wife uh, hurts him with her, his words and his friends accuse him of sinning, that he didn't sin. And he's crying out in pain and wanting to talk to God. A storm gathers above him. This is like a huge, like, like maybe think of this like this. I like to think of it like this. Job is just fed up with his friends, maybe. He's fed up with what's going on, so he just leaves and he goes to the top of a mountain. He's praying, he's crying out to God, God, I want to talk to you. God, I want to talk to you. And all of a sudden, he hears thunder. And there's a cloud forming above him. And it, there, something is happening and he's on this hill and, and, and he's like, okay, something's about to happen. And from this storm, he hears the voice of God. That's in chapter 38. He finally gets his day in court with God. God goes through a series of questions. I open up the sermon with one of them. And he's asking Job, basically, what do you know about the world, Job? What do you know about how things work? question was, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Job's like, I wasn't even around, Right? And there's all kinds of questions like that. Job, what makes a horse run fast? 
and just tons of questions like this, and Job has no answer. Job isn't the one who created everything. Job wasn't there when God made the earth. So how can he possibly begin to know why God allowed this suffering to fall on him? That's kind of the point. It's, it's, it's not that, now get this, it's not that God refuses to explain. Job can't understand. After God speaks, Job gives his answer and here is his answer in chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything, and no plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this who conceals my counsel with ignorance? Surely I spoke about things I did not understand, things too wondrous for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. When I question you, you will inform me. I had heard reports about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I reject my words and I'm sorry for them. I am dust and ashes. I had heard reports about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Job has been overwhelmed by the presence of God. God reveals himself to Job, and that's enough for Job. A significant encounter with the Lord brings meaning and purpose and understanding to Job. In the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our suffering, it is enough to know God. That's a very strange answer. It makes no sense to unbelievers. It seems like it falls short, like it's not even an answer. Like, I'm suffering, why am I suffering? Knowing God's enough. Like, that's the answer. It doesn't make sense unless you know the God that Job knows. If you have had an encounter with the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, you know he is more than enough. And that's the main point I want to make. That's the big idea I want to drive home. Encountering Jesus Christ is the only hope for your suffering. An encounter with the Son of God is the only hope you have in a world full of sufferings. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says this, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. So God says, let there be light, right? Genesis chapter one, that's the power of creation. He says unto your heart, let there be light. When you hear the gospel and you hear the good news that that there is a God who loves you, a God who says, I see the broken world, I'm going to redeem it through my son who's going to bear the curse of the world upon him and through faith in him you will have eternal life. You will be forgiven of your sins. You've sinned against me and you will have the Holy Spirit and you will live with me forever and ever. When you hear that, the light comes on through the power of the Holy Spirit and you see Jesus Christ. 
and you love what you see, there's a desire of, wow, it's, it's just as good, it's better than hearing God's voice from a, from a storm. To know the, the, the true God of the universe in his son, Jesus Christ. We don't have all the answers to our sufferings, but we've seen God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Moses went on the Mount, uh, Mount Sinai, and he saw God. We meet God the same way through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, Job said, I saw God. Remember this beatitude from Matthew chapter 5, verse 8? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Our hope is to one day see God face to face. Our world is full of suffering, and that comes from the fall of man. Adam and Eve in the garden. They had an amazing relationship with God, priests to God, and they chose to rebel, and that brought a world of suffering. But our story doesn't end in suffering. No, it comes through the redemption that's in Jesus. We'll one day, we'll one day meet God in heaven. There'll be a new heavens, a new earth, and when God wipes away our tears, that'll be enough for our suffering. Until then, we encounter Jesus when we gather together as believers and worship and hear his word. We encounter Jesus when we come to prayer meetings, when we, when we lift up praises um, through song or we take the Lord's Supper. We encounter God when we're alone and, and reading our word and praying to God. Encountering Jesus is the only hope for your suffering. God eventually restored Job. He gave more children, more wealth, John Piper has a poem about Job, and it's called The Misery of Job and the Mercy of God. And at the end of the poem is a piece there that I'm going to read a few of it for us, where Piper imagines Job talking to his little daughter Jemima after God has restored him. And I think we have on the screen here, and I'll read some of this for us, and um, I want you to listen. So this is Job talking to Jemima. Your daddy once was very rich, and you had three big sisters, which I loved with all my heart. They died with seven brothers all inside, a great big house that fell because a giant wind broke all the laws we thought we knew. How little did we know. And then one day amid the grief, I got so sick no one could tell that it was me. I'd done all that I knew to do, but still it came and vexed my soul until I almost lost my faith. Do you think God made you so sick? She drew her breath and swallowed hard. I know. You'd like to think that there's a foe that hurts and a God that heals. And that would not be wrong. But I have sat and pondered months in pain to see if that is true, if misery is Satan's work and happiness is God's. Jemima, we must bless the Lord for all that's good and bad. But Papa, God's not mean or mad. He's not our enemy. He's kind and gentle, isn't he? Your mind is right, Jemima, but it is small. He's gentle, kind, but that's not all. I have some friends who thought they knew the mind of God and that their view of tenderness exhausted God's and that severity and rods could only be explained with blame to vindicate his holy name. So you think it was God who made you sick? I think God never laid aside the reins that lie against the neck of Satan, nor unfenced his pen to run at liberty, but only by the Lord's decree. 
So you think God was kind to make you sick, Jemima asked, and take away your health and all your sons and friends and daughters, all the ones you loved? Jemima, what I think is this. The Lord has made me drink the cup of his severity, that he might kindly show to me what I would be when only he remains in my calamity. What would you be when only Christ remains in your calamity? You don't have anything to hold on to. You don't even have answers. You just have the Lord. Is he enough for you? In the power of the Holy Spirit, he is. Let me pray for us. Thanks for joining us today. If you'd like to support this ministry, go to our website at fbcdelray.com. Also, click the share button so you can share this message with a friend or someone in need as we seek to know Jesus, to know others, and to make him known. We cry out, we cry out.